0: Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets of Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-hosts, Maria Wickvilla and Caroline D.R.T. Edwards. I'll remind you again, Maria is the founder of Applicant Lab and Caroline is the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions and the former head of admissions at NCOD. I want to talk today about GMAT scores. You know, obviously, there's this great obsession about standardized tests when you apply to an elite MBA program that is highly selective. And standardized scores count for a lot. And that's because it's one way to compare uh, candidates from all over the world with others, because sometimes GPAs aren't as good a reflection as a current uh, standardized test score even though GPAs are earned over three to four years as opposed to a test score which is earned over three hours or so of a test. But what's really interesting here is how GMAT scores have been climbing. So in the U.S. alone, people who apply to U.S. programs now are applying with ever higher GMAT scores. The average score of of GMAT exam for those who apply to a program in the U.S., is now 658. That's up 45 points from 613 only five years ago. And just as interestingly are those who score 700 and up. In the U.S. in testing year 2021, roughly 23% of the exams had scores of 700 and up. That's compared to only 14% five years ago. That's a big jump. And in Australia and the Pacific Islands, thirty-two percent of the people taking uh, the GMAT exam now have scores of seven hundred and up. Maria, what do you make of this?
1: So I think there are probably a lot of factors at play here, and I'm sure we can. I'm sure Caroline and you and, and all three of us have 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 a lot that we could talk about here. I think the first one that jumps to my mind is probably that more and more people are taking the GRE as an option, a viable option to get into business school. When I first started. Looking at MBA admissions over you know, just over 20 years ago, the GRE was something that you pretty much only submitted if you were applying to a dual degree program. And so you didn't want to have to take two standardized tests. But it has become increasingly a viable alternative to the GMAT. And in fact, not only viable, but I would go so far as to say an attractive alternative to the GMAT, especially for people for whom standardized testing may be a hurdle or something that they don't excel at. Uh, one statistic that I pulled up is that roughly sort of 10 years ago or so, about 12 percent of the incoming class at Harvard Business School applied with a GRE score. Uh, And this most recent year, 30 percent applied with a GRE score. So it has gone from being a niche thing that a few candidates could explain away. Oh, here's why I didn't take the GMAT, because I had already taken this other test. And so why have to take two? But now it's actually become a, uh, a viable, if not more attractive, alternative because I do believe that all things considered, the GRE is a quote-unquote easier test to take. And even if it's not easier, I also believe that there is sort of a psychological forgiveness element that happens if somebody applies with a GRE score that is not stellar because the GRE has not been consistently used within the MBA admissions community. You know, if I look at a school and I say, wow, their, GMAT, their average GMAT used to be 730, and this year it went down to 710, I can immediately and intuitively know that's a huge difference. But if I look at a school's average GRE scores and I say, oh, their average went from 164 to 162 in quant or verbal or what have you, that I have a less of a... I'm like, well, it only sounds like a two point difference. That's not a big deal, right? So until I think the market overall, it's it's interesting. I know I don't have this is I have some I have some numbers, uh, but I also have some non numbers and some more emotional psychological uh, arguments. And I think that because the GMAT is scored, it goes up by increments of ten, versus the GRE, which goes up and down in increments of one. And because I think that an increment of one difference in the GRE is a much larger swing in percentile difference versus a ten point swing in a GMAT score, you know, I mean, some of the top GMAT scores, you're in the 99th percentile if you have like a 760, 770, 780. And they they don't report it within a different granularity of 99.2%, 99.8%. So in other words, because of the way how the GMAT is scored, I just think that it's a lot easier if you're not a great test taker to say, well, I just, you know, I got a 161 and the average at the school is 163, but that's pretty close, right? Even if you were to then translate that same exact score, that same exact percentile to a GMAT score, it might be be like a 40 point, (laughs) I don't know exactly what, but it'd be a huge swing where we would all step back and say, whoa, that's a pretty big difference. But for GRE, just- Yeah, that's a, a,
0: you know, Maria, that's a really good point. You know, I'm going to just say 10 years ago, can you believe it? We ran a story, it's called Schools Accepting Lower GRE Scores. And we proved that, in fact, if you use the conversion charts put out by Educational Testing Service, which is the administrator of um, the GRE, uh, basically schools were widely accepting much lower GRE scores than GMAT scores. One example was Duke. Now, uh, back then, uh, the, the equivalent GRE score, well, rather, rather the equivalent GMAT score for those who submitted GREs was 640 at Duke, when the average GMAT score back then was 690, a 50 point difference. The difference at Michigan Ross was 33 points. Uh, at WashU Olin, the difference was nearly 100 GMAT points. So I think this trend uh, remains true today. Schools are much more willing for whatever reason. Maybe part of it is the reason you just uh, mentioned, you know, a one or two point difference doesn't feel as big as a 10 point difference on the GMAT. That's part of it. Also, I think that, you know, many schools are under the mistaken impression that uh, U.S. news does not incorporate GR scores in its weighting for its ranking. They 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 didn't back 10 years ago, but they do now. But how they weight it is sort of a bit of a mystery. It's not really explained. So I think a lot of schools think they can take lower GRE scores uh, and not suffer in the rankings. So that's really that's really interesting. We should run that analysis again, and see what it's gonna look like.
1: Just really quickly, that stat that you just that you just cited where you take, if you take the ETS GRE to GMAT score converter, so the average GMAT score for HBS for the most recent class was 730. If you take their average GRE score and put it through the same score converter, uh, I believe it's a 690. And when you look at percentiles, a 730 GMAT score is 96 percentile and a there, the six uh, six ninety GMAT score is an eighty fourth percentile, so about a ten percent swing, which is a pretty
0: yeah,
1: pretty big difference.
0: That's fascinating. Now, it is true that uh, more non traditional students take the GRE, and more women take the GRE, and you know that 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 could have some impact on these numbers as well. I would think, Caroline, what's your take on these inflated GMAT numbers? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I do think there is an element of self-selection going on here. So as you say, um, people know that average GREs are often lower than the average GMAT. And therefore, if I'm not a good test taker, then I probably should go in the direction of the GRE. Although having said that, um, you know, you make a good point that a lot of the GRE test takers, um, there there is a different profile in the pool, right, of the GRE pool versus the GMAT pool. And, and schools know that, and they are um, often more flexible on their expectations of standardized tests um, from candidates who bring something to the classroom that, you know, the management consultants and the investment bankers may not bring to the classroom. Right? So additional perspective, additional, you know, a more diverse experience or more diverse profile, and I think therefore that if you are one of those more traditional candidates, you might not get as much leeway as you would otherwise expect if you take the GRE, right? Because the schools are are maybe taking candidates with lower GREs, but it's also because those candidates have those non-traditional profiles. And therefore, if you have that more traditional profile, then you you may be disappointed if you apply with a, a GRE that doesn't match to, you know, doesn't map to a, such a strong GMAT, you might not. It, it might actually diminish your chances versus a candidate with a similar profile who applies with a GMAT um, and with a strong GMAT. So I think you know you need to keep keep in mind the difference in profile of the test takers. But there is, a, you know, I think there's increasingly self selection going on here with um, many schools. Not requiring the tests, or um, test optional, and this is also happening in the undergraduate market in the US as well. With you know, there's a lot of uh, inflation of SAT scores because students are not going to take the SAT if they don't have to, and they're not going to be good te- they're not good test takers. So I, I'm not sure where we end up. Right? <laughs> it look it, it's an incredible increase that you've highlighted in this article. You know, it's remarkable how much it's gone up over the past five years. And is that going to carry on, right? Are, are candidates going to continue to self-select that they will only take the GMAT if they think they're going to do well on it and therefore um, the average will will creep up and up? I'm not sure that, and and at that point, is it a very useful benchmark for, <laughs> for admissions, right? Because if people are only taking it, if they're good at the test, then it's not really, it, it, it's not a common data point. You know, the value... Of having something like the GMAT or the GRE, especially when you've got a very diverse pool. And you know, this was very true when I was working at INSEAD. You've got a diverse pool of people who come from all different educational systems, a lot of different countries, a lot of different backgrounds, you know, incredible diversity. The GMAT can be very useful as one common data point that people have, or, or the GRE, because everything else is completely different in their profile and it's very difficult sometimes to compare candidates with very different backgrounds. And if you're know if you getting a lot of applications from candidates who haven't got the test or have decided to take it only if they're going to do well, then I'm not sure how useful that is as, as a data point to compare people.
0: True. And all you have to do is look at USC's Marshall School, right? Their latest uh, enrolled MBA class had an average GMAT of 732. That's up 25 points in two years alone. So, you know, looking at the overall inflation of GMAT uh, scores gives some understanding of how is it possible that USC Marshall could have a 25-point increase in the class average GMAT score to 732 against Harvard's 730 median How is that even remotely possible? Well, it's because more and more people are scoring 700 and up on the test. Uh, And it seems, I mean, if you go to Australia and a third of the people are scoring 700 and up, and in the U.S. alone, it's 23%. Uh, It doesn't feel as special as it once was. And, of course, you know, Maria, you'll point out that MBA admissions is holistic, A standardized test is one of many elements that are considered. How important an element today do you think standardized test is?
1: Well, to, to Caroline's earlier point, I do continue to think that standardized tests play a valuable role, perhaps not as a benchmark across the entire applicant pool. I do think that standardized tests should be seen within the context of a specific candidate's upbringing and their competitive bucket. Um, so, for example, someone who grew up in a non-English speaking country and was educated in a non-English language should—I think—it's perfectly acceptable for that person to have a lower verbal score. That is not, to me, an indicator of their intellectual capacity. So, I, I do think, though, that there is there is absolutely a, a room for the for the standardized for the standardized test because you have so many different candidates from so many different backgrounds, uh, and so you know, these different universities all have completely different grading systems. And it's just, it's a huge nightmare to try to, to try to figure out some sort of a way to measure them. At a certain point, you do have to choose better versus worse candidates because otherwise, you know, you can't accept hundred percent of them. Uh, and so in that context where people do have to be chosen and some people have to be not chosen, it, I think it's, it's a perfectly fine uh, thing. And and if, if the GMAT does end up going away, I would hope that there becomes, if not some other thing to replace it, perhaps perhaps it's not a test, mm-hmm. then in that case, I would hope that there would be a way to determine with more transparency what does make for a strong competitive profile. So just to make something up, if it's not about test scores, maybe it is about, you know, in order to be competitive for a school, you have to have had a management experience of at least two years, or you have to have had some experience with dealing with your company's senior management and impacting senior management or some some of those more qualitative yardsticks that I think as admissions professionals, we use when we're judging someone's uh, competitiveness. I think maybe then right. if... That that would have to be the way then that we start we start looking at it, which creates its own set of problems, right? What if somebody's amazing, but they work at a very large company that's very hierarchical and does not allow them to talk to the CEO and change the CEO's mind? So I just again like it, in, a, in a complicated world with a complicated admissions process, I think that the I hope that the standardized tests don't go away completely because I do think that they provide a lot of value.
0: Yep. Caroline, you obviously were making admission decisions at NCAD on candidates. Uh, How important was a standardized test to you?
2: Well, it it is, as you say, there's a holistic admissions process um, at at business school. And so it is one data point of many, but it it, it is an important data point and it is a valuable data point. And it's not more important than someone's undergraduate track record. And it's certainly not more important than their professional track record. Right And um, so it, it all of those things are important, right? The schools are looking at a lot of different dimensions, but nevertheless, it makes it harder to get in if you have a very weak standardized test score. but I think one other issue with this this inflation is you know are our, our candidates going to be scared off by those numbers, right and that's that's been a concern top business schools for a long time as their average GMATs have crept up does it deter some candidates from even considering the school right and you know I I think that there there is a problem there when you look at as you show in your article there's a great diversity of average scores from different countries and different regions and you know if you broke that down or into different profiles, then you would see, you know, greater disparities as well. And will some candidates who actually have a huge amount to bring to business school, and a lot to add to the classroom, will they be deterred from applying because of that, um, those headline numbers without necessarily understanding the context? So I am, I am concerned about that. And, you know, Maria made a very good point about, um, The fact that uh you know you you would expect naked native english speakers to do better on the gmat right i mean it's very difficult for a non-native english speaker to do especially the verbal part of the test i mean i speak pretty good french but i would um be very challenged to try and do a version of the gmat in french and so you so and business schools do factor that in right they they understand that if you're a native english speaker then it's easier to do well especially on the verbal than it is for non-native english speaker and so i'm concerned that with those very scary headline numbers and that increased inflation that seems to be continuing right i don't see where this <laughs> this stopping anytime soon that this could be a um, a deterrent for some really fantastic candidates
0: yeah and you and you're right i mean when you look at the numbers and they're in this article that we just did Uh, In Germany and Italy, for example, only 11% of the test takers scored 700 and up. That's half the level of 700 and up scores in the U.S. alone, right? So clearly, you look at some of the the language difficulties, and and it really comes through by country. uh, Interestingly enough, in Nigeria, And we know that Africa is becoming a a more important uh, part of the MBA applicant pool. Five years ago, fewer than 5.5%, less than half a percent of the test takers in Nigeria scored a 700 and up. Now, 7% of them score 700 and up. That's a big change. Um, I'm also thinking that it's probably true that, you know, GMAT prep, has become increasingly sophisticated. And those who have the opportunity to have a tutor or to be in a class or to even avail themselves of online uh, support uh, platforms, uh, that's probably contributed to some degree of uh, for, to higher scores as well. What hasn't contributed is the test has not gotten easier. No one would agree with that but i think the test optional policies the fact that you can take a gre score lower and still get into a really good school and better prep materials that are out there and more accessible more widely accessible because you know many of the online platforms that allow you to study for the gmat cost only a fraction of what gmat prep had cost in the past i think that's an element of this somehow Now, I also wonder, you know, if you're an admissions official and you're reading about this GMAT inflation, and it's pretty significant, how does that change the way you look at the score? What do you think, Maria?
1: I mean, my take, if I were an admissions official, which I have not been and caroline has been so i'm really looking forward to her her answer to this uh how i how i would look at it is almost not so much that a high score gets you in but a very low score would be a cause for concern and i think a low score would keep keep someone out potentially and again i would look at it in context so someone who perhaps is from egypt who was raised speaking arabic and attended an arabic you know Maybe they went to the American University of Cairo, but otherwise their entire context has not been in English. I would personally be more forgiving of a lower verbal score. Uh, I think I would be on the lookout for a some sort of a floor on the quant number, not on not in terms of percentile, because as you know, as we can expect, the percentiles, you know, a 48 on the quant used to be a pretty strong score. And now it feels like a lot of people from a percentile basis of more and more and more people are getting a 48 on the quant. But so for me, something like, okay, I would want someone to do at least a 47, 48 on the quant in terms of that being their score that they get, even if that means a lot of people are doing it. And I, I think I would just look at it within, within context, but I would certainly be alarmed if somebody, you know, had, if I were comparing two candidates side by side who had very similar Sort of work experiences, and one of them had a dramatically lower score than the other. uh, Especially if they had not then retaken the test. Uh, You know, I would I also look at retakes, right? I think sometimes people submit, and this is this is a problem I think for people from cultures from countries where the culture is very test driven. Uh, Sometimes I meet people who will say, "Well, I took the GMAT seven times, and I finally broke." You know, I would have applied to business school four years ago, but it took me years and years to get that 700. And I think, oh no. You should have probably applied seven years or you know four years ago or whenever it was. So, but then, and also like I tell people, like you realize that they can see, they ask how many times you've taken the test. And so if somebody has taken the test once and got a 700 and someone else took the test seven times to- or six times or whatever that limit is and got a 700, you realize that it's a little bit less impressive if it took you that many tries to get to that level. So I don't although,
0: know. Although it doesn't doesn't it demonstrate how bad you want it, and and it's kind of like the fire in the belly metric, because uh, people who have that fire in the belly are more likely to be successful than those who don't.
1: I mean, there's fire in the belly, and then there's setting yourself on fire to, <laughs> <but> yeah, accidentally. <laughs> I I just you know how bad do you want it doesn't necessarily mean anything if you're not that bright right? How badly yeah. I want it. I want to, I want to become a professional. I want to become the starting center for the Chicago bulls. And I want that really badly. But the fact is I'm a five foot zero <laughs> middle-aged woman. Like it's not going to happen. So no matter how badly I want it, I, I mean, I. I can appreciate the tenacity involved, right? It definitely, if somebody gets a low score and then they don't retake that to me is a bit of a red flag. Like, well, did you not look yeah. at what the requirements are? Did you, did you, Think that we wouldn't notice. So at least at the minimum, I think a retake does show some level of commitment. Uh, but I think there's yeah. also a, a level where it just gets to be a little, like you know what, maybe you, maybe you should just apply for a, a, a school that is not the school that you initially were hoping to get into. Uh, and
0: yeah, it's interesting. You know, for for this story, we interviewed uh, the person at uh, Kaplan uh, test prep. And uh, that person mentioned that there's no longer a stigma about taking the GMAT multiple times. Uh, And in the past, there had been a bit of a stigma. And as we do know, there are business schools who tell people, hey, take the GMAT again, get, get another 20 points and we'll admit you. That does happen. And I'm sure you might have seen that in some of your clients. Now let's go let's go back to that other question the central question is how does an admission official interpret these higher numbers and let's go to Caroline on that since she actually had to make these decisions at one point
2: Well I mean it it very much depends on the on the context of the candidate right so the schools um know that certain candidates typically do better than others on the GMAT and they will have that in mind when they're evaluating a candidate so you know, as we've said if you've if you've got if you've got an otherwise strong profile and you're from a background where candidates typically do well on the GMAT but you don't do well on the GMAT right you're going to be compared to other candidates who have done well on the GMAT so it's just it's not going to look good. So it it really depends on who you are. So that, you know they'll definitely be looking at the profile and and they will have certain expectations of how a candidate should do. But at a certain point, you know, the, it doesn't make a lot of difference, right? If a candidate gets the 740 versus a 750 versus a 760 versus a 770, right? Once you've met a certain benchmark, and I agree with Maria that, you know, that quant score can be very, very important, um, especially for profiles where the candidate may not have a lot of quant experience in their work and may not have a strong quant academic background from the undergrad, that, that quant becomes very important. So the schools will be looking to see if someone has met a certain threshold. And, you know, I've spent more time looking at the breakdown of the scores than the total scores, right? I think the breakdown is 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 more interesting and tells you more about a candidate's academic ability. And you're looking to understand different things from different parts of the test. And you're looking at that also in context of the undergraduate um, experience. So, so, you know, a, a candidate who has, you know, in my case, when I was applying to business school, I had studied languages at, at undergrad, and um, I didn't have a strong quantitative background. And so, you know, I knew that I needed to do pretty well on the, on the quant, on the GMAT to demonstrate that ability, because that is an important part of the academic experience of business school. So, you know, the context is, is is you know, remains very important, but at a certain point, you know, if the candidates just keep, the scores keep creeping higher and higher, I'm not sure that it's really benefiting them that much, right? You need to show that you've, that you could reach a, reach a certain academic level. And beyond that, the schools are going to be looking at other things. They're going to be looking at what else do you bring to the program? They're going to be looking at your professional experience. They're going to be bring, looking at, what you will bring to the community. I'm not sure that having, you know, a super high GMAT score is going to impress them um, more than someone who's got, you know, fantastic leadership experience or has done something very impressive in an extracurricular dimension. So I do think that candidates often overindex the value of having a super high GMAT and think that that can make them look like a really strong candidate. When in fact, okay, it makes them look like a really good test taker, but doesn't necessarily make them look better than another candidate who is stronger in other dimensions.
0: Yeah, that's really true. And the the other thing is there is to some degree an arms race in GMAT scores. And and some of the reasoning behind that happens to be U.S. news and the fact that they weight this this number. Uh, And it does discourage people. One of my pet peeves is, look, you don't need a 700 to give an admissions official confidence that you can complete the core without difficulty. I don't know what that number is. Maybe it's 650, maybe it's 600, maybe it's even less, Uh, but it doesn't, it isn't 730. And yet everyone wants, you know, to report a class average above 700 if you're uh, in You know, a a school that's highly ranked. Now, the Stanford number, incidentally, for the latest class, 737. That's going to turn off a lot of people. A lot of people are going to say, hey, I don't have a shot at Stanford if I'm not, you know, way up there uh, with a GMAT score and people are uh, not going to apply. And that's a sin because obviously we do know that admissions are holistic and an average means that, that there are a lot of people who score below the average. Uh, and still get in. But you look at 737 and you say, wow, if I'm sitting at 680, I don't have a chance. Why should I even bother and apply? What What do you say to people who, who uh, use that rationale and basically talk themselves out of applying, Maria?
1: Well, I think, first of all, if you're going to use that rationale and talk yourself out of applying, you're probably not the sort of person that Stanford wants anyway, right? <laughs> right? That's, <laughs> that's yeah. I, I'm being really oh. serious. Like, Stanford's looking for people who are going to change lives, change organizations and change the world. If you see a single barrier, potential barrier to your acceptance and you give up, you're probably not the sort of person who's going to change the world in general. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, of course, it's a 737 because they accept people who are, you know, truly exceptional and people who are truly exceptional in one dimension of life are often truly exceptional in lots of dimensions. And so of course they're going to be the sorts of people who do very well on the test. What I would tell that person on a pragmatic level, you know, uh, to their face, as opposed to what I would just say to myself in my head, which is the part I just said out loud, is I would just, uh, this is ex- this is the perfect candidate where if, let's assume that everything else is perfect. Like they had launched a new division of their company and expanded their company into a new market and turned around a failing division and all that stuff that I know Stanford loves to see amongst other things. Let's say that they had that, but they had- a 680 GMAT, I would just say, take the GRE. This is a perfect person to, in my opinion, to take the GRE. It is, for all the reasons we've been discussing, it is a less judgy test. (laughs) I think it's easier to get a higher percentile. And even if it weren't, I think that the the levels of judgment on a slightly lower GRE score are not as high as the levels of judgment on a slightly uh, lower GMAT score.
0: Yep, True. Okay, for those of you out there who want to look at our story, it's called GMAT score inflation, now nearly 20% of test takers are scoring 700 or higher. We have uh, the numbers by country and region of the world uh, for the latest year, uh, as well as five years earlier, so you can see uh, how inflated scores have actually become. Well, Maria and Caroline, thanks once again for your insights. Really appreciate them. And for all of you out there, thanks for listening. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quads.